Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the Editorial Director of PR Week and I guide you gently through another show. And we have a terrific guest this week, Stephanie Lowenthal, who's Global Head of Comms at Trivago. And Stephanie's calling in from Germany in Dusseldorf. So welcome to the show, Stephanie. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I hope you're having better weather than we are in Germany. <laughs> it's a bit grim this morning, but we've been uh, we've been having some, well, very, very hot weather. So, yeah, it's been uh, okay back in Brooklyn. But um, you, uh, you're a transplant from uh, Queens originally and now, now living in Germany. So we're looking forward to finding out how that's, uh, how that's been over the past couple of years and, and about the Trivago. So... Uh, um, we're also joined by Frank Washkook, who's the executive editor of PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? Also calling in from um, Brooklyn. Yes, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So we'll talk to Stephanie, then we'll get into a few issues of the week. Um, what's happening with the return to normal? Uh, it seems to change day by day. So we'll chat about that and what that means for events and uh, communication strategies, etc. Edelman has acquired a consulting firm in D.C. called Basilina and is rolling out a D.C. advisory offering. So we'll talk about that. Martin Sorrell, his holding company, has rebranded. Uh, we'll talk about the Andrew Cuomo affair, as it were, and uh, the Olympics. Got a few days left. Been enjoying them. Um, we'll get some more reflections on that. It was good to see Simone Biles in competition and winning a medal. And uh, PR Week's opened up its call for best places to work submissions. But, uh, Stephanie, let's talk to you first. You've been in Germany for a couple of years doing the Trivago Gib gig and uh, not much has happened over those two years has it to uh, yeah. you know, uh, challenge you at all um, tell, us how, <laughs> tell us how the job came about first and um, how it's been um, you know relocating from uh, from Queens to Dusseldorf okay. yeah um, so I um, I worked at the Nasdaq stock market um, where I was uh, heading communications for the capital market group and that part of the Nasdaq is the listings, the IPOs, the big market site um, that you see in Times Square. And part of my job was to um, be part of the IPO pitch team, per se, to um, try and, and um, get companies to list on the NASDAQ uh, versus the New York Stock Exchange or, or wherever. Um, and then once you know they were a NASDAQ-listed company or joined, um, I would help them through the IPO process from a PR media standpoint, um, any way that I can, and then um, try and create synergies. Um, you know, if speaking opportunities or uh, writing opportunities, conferences with uh, between NASDAQ and our listed companies. So I was um, actually part of the uh, NASDAQ team that um, worked with Trivago when they went public in 2016. Um, and then, you know, kept in touch and worked with them a few times um, at different conferences, um, et cetera. When they were in um, New York or in America, I would help them set up some media interviews while they were here. So I've known them for quite some time. Um, and they reached out, um, asked if I would be interested in moving to Dusseldorf, Germany to uh, head up their their comms uh, team. And uh, took a little bit of convincing because, you know, I am a New Yorker <laughs> and uh, was not so familiar with Dusseldorf, uh, although I've traveled Europe quite a bit. Um, but I'm very happy I made the move um, 
And now you're an expert in Danglish, is that true? <laughs> in Danglish, yeah. I wouldn't say expert. I would say a, a failing uh, German student. <laughs> it's quite a hard language to learn, but uh, I, I, when I do try, I tend to um, throw in some English here and there, and it's just a bit of a disaster. <laughs> What would your What would your advice be for a PR pro? You know, looking to take on a gig like that. You know, moving to a foreign country where English is not the first language, although it is the company language. So, what would your advice be, having done that for a couple of years? Well, I think you know, for for one, for me, the move was easy because um, Travago is a, a global company, and so we um, are, as you mentioned, our our work language is English. Um, I would say, you know. Honestly, I believe in taking risks and taking chances, and I don't think that, you know, anything will change in your life if you stay put. So it's always definitely worth taking the risk. And what made me move when I was sort of hesitant was the founder of Travago, um, Ralph, had said to me, he's like, what's the biggest, you know, the biggest issue? You don't like it? You move back to New York. It's not going anywhere. So and- true. I, I took, the, took the leap of faith, so to speak. Yeah, my mum used to say to me, if you don't do something, you'll never know what would have happened. So uh, uh, yeah. I totally agree with you, making those jumps. Once you make them, you think, why didn't I do that, you know, ages before? So, uh, yeah, good for you. And you get experience of a global brand not based in New York, which I think gives you a, a great perspective for the, for the rest of your career as well. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting um, – you know, that obviously working at the NASDAQ as a global company, um, you know, when in my PR firm world, I've worked on global companies. I think it's different when you when you work um, in Europe or, or outside of America uh, and your um, colleagues are from all walks of the world. Um, you know, I think Trivago is something like 70 percent uh, are international employees, not from Germany. And the diversity of thought that you get when you work with people from all around the world is so valuable because I come at things and I think, you know, I understand the perspective of everyone when I'm thinking on a strategy, but I'm thinking from an American point of view, you know, subconsciously, like I just, that's, I, I think I write, I think like, you know, how I would want to receive it as a consumer. But when you pull someone from, Brazil, you pull someone from India or, or, you know, Spain, obviously the way you communicate and the way that um, they uh, consume content and information is different. So it's such a valuable opportunity to be able to work um, outside of your own country. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for sure. Now, for those who don't know much about Trivago, it's a hotel search price comparison website, but you have been making some plays in expanding that and doing some acquisitions. I think you acquired weekend.com. Tell us a bit about that and um, how the, what the strategy is for the company in terms of maybe broadening its um, services, but also obviously it's been a really tough year for anyone in the travel industry. So t- talk us through that as well. Yeah, so it's a good question. Thank you. So these, um, you know, changes sort of happened in 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 alignment. I want to say with with COVID. Um, I'm sure that there was you know some leadership strategy behind it beforehand. But when COVID hit and the um, industry came to a complete halt, um, you know, the leadership kind of took a look at the platform and the product that we have and what the future might look for the traveler. And it was sort of obvious that, you know, we should take the opportunity to kind of expand 
um, and and build out a bit more than our, our core product, which was um, hotel accommodation, um, uh, MetaSearch for hotel accommodations. Um, so weekend.com um, is rail packages. Uh, so now you have the opportunity to book um, a package uh, uh, on trains in Europe. And then we partnered, uh, we're working with TUI Amusement. Uh, we've added um, activities and tours to, to the platform. So now you can um, go and book a, a hotel and, um, and an activity such as, you know, a walking tour or a sightseeing or, um, you know, something specific to the area that you're going to. And then we've also expanded it to have more inspirational content. Um, so if you know, our platform has always been one where you know where you're going. So I want to go to Barcelona. I'm going to book a hotel in Barcelona and that's that. But now with COVID and the uncertainty of the restrictions and people kind of just wanting to, you know, go somewhere, but they don't know where they want to go, but they know they don't want to go far, maybe a short drive. Um, and they know they want a beach, um, but they don't know where. So that's really kind of what we've, we've started to, to build out with our offerings, which is inspirational content. We can filter it and give you ideas on places to go that are not so far from your home if you're, you don't feel safe um, yeah. getting on a plane. You get the hotel and then you've got the activities and all the other good stuff as well in one, one place. Now, you had your results recently and you made a profit, which, uh, you know, is, is a, I guess is an achievement. Um, I think it was <laughs> that's a little surprising to analysts, but clearly last year was, was a, a terrible year for and, and if everyone in the travel industry. How did you handle that, you know, as a company and as an organization and from a messaging point of view as well? How did we, sorry, your question is, how did we handle communications at the start of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah. I'm guessing internal was a massive part of it to start with. But, um, and, and then, you know, you've got to um, deal with the fallout from COVID, but also just, make, you know, get make sure the messaging is on point um, moving forward. Um, no, it's a great question, and I, I have to say, for me personally, was such a, a learning experience, learning as you go. I think, um, you know, when COVID hit, there was so much uncertainty. We knew that um, in February of 2020, there was some virus happening in Asia, and we even sort of mentioned it on our earnings call um, that we, we know there's a virus and uh, there's uncertainty around it, so I, we didn't um, provide um, um, guidance. Um, but as things started to shut down and we started to close the office and everyone went to remote, we realized that, um, you know, it's, it's going to um, be a huge impact on A, the globe, but B, the industry. And there's just an uncertainty around how long. Um, and my CEO um, had sort of dealt similar in SARS. He was in, in Hong Kong. I think it was Hong Kong. He was working at the time during SARS. So he, you know, it was a bit of... Um, kind of already had dealt with something a little bit similar from a management perspective. Um, and we kept in constant communication on a, a, a throughout the days every day and um, decided that obviously we don't want to be out there uh, promoting travel when there's uncertainty and it's not safe. Um, and we're not going to be marketing around it um, because there's no point in marketing for something that, that you can't do. But from a communication perspective, we wanted to make sure that we are an advocate for our users and the traveler, travelers. Um, 
things were closing people out of tips books, things were getting canceled left and right. There was no real information out there. So we wanted to kind of make sure that we we're out there, we're talking from a company perspective, we understand that we're not going to have revenue, we understand that the industry is going to be hit quite hard, but what's important to us now is making sure that we can help provide clarity and transparency um, on the industry as much as we know to help those who are, you know, un uh, have, don't know about their tricks or how to get their money back or, you know, whatever it was. So that's, yeah. that's the approach that we took in the beginning. Where do you think we are now? Because obviously you've got a great global perspective with lots of operations in different parts of the world. I mean, in, in New York, where, you know, the Delta variant is starting to play a role and there's been new guidance on uh, masks and, uh, you know, being vaccinated before you go into restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. With your global perspective, where, where do you feel we are now? And, and I mean, I guess what we all want to know is when can we come back to some sort of new normal? And I guess nobody really knows because we're playing it by ear. But uh, what perspectives can you give us and when and how are you tailoring your messaging? No, it's a good question. Um, I think we also see the uncertainty. Obviously, there is such a demand this summer for travel, such a huge pent up demand um, that the second that restrictions opened, we saw immediate response on our platform, um, which just proves to show you that travel is an essential part of everyday's everyone's life. Um, and it, it's not going to go anywhere, but it is going to look quite different. And with the Delta variant, you know, we, we expect um, still to be a bit of a rocky road in terms of travel. It's more so the uncertainty of restrictions, things kind of, you know, um, countries got on risk lists, um, there's travel bans that sort of happen right away. So it's more of the traveler being uncertain if they want to take a test and go and then potentially get stuck there. Um, so we do see local travel, which has been quite dominant since COVID, still leading um, leading the way in terms of how people travel um, in a car, in a train, or a, a short flight staying within the country or within Europe, staying within you know, a, a short flight. You know, Germany, Netherlands is, is quite close. You can drive there. Um, so we, we see it playing that way. And from a communications perspective, I think we are really kind of, our, our, our strategy didn't really change. Um, we are quite transparent in how we are, are seeing um, the industry moving, uh, offering products and services just to try and help the new traveler stay um, with their travels, um, but find it, uh, find a, a, a easier and maybe more comfortable way to travel. Um, and that's really kind of like our approach, to be honest with you. But from the Delta variant, it's, you know, who knows what's going to happen after that, if there's another variant or not. So just got to be agile and flexible, I guess. Yeah. That's something yeah. which is a trend for communicators anyway, and it's something that PR people are good at. But uh, yeah, people are desperate to get out and about and do things, yeah. aren't they? So that local travel thing is very, is a, is a massive trend for sure. Right. And, and uh, the other not to cut you off, but the, the other thing I think is really important, you know, from a, from a, my personal experience working with Trivago, it's been such a, a great experience working with the leadership team because we are quite agile. And um, I think there's what I think is the most important thing during um, a crisis like this is trust within your organization. You have to really trust your leaders. You have to really trust the people that you've put in place to kind of carry you through something like this. And it's been um, a really great experience working with the, with the team here in that. Yeah. 
Well, we wish you luck with that and um, um, continued good fortune in uh, telling your story and, and uh, being a, P- a global PR pro in Dusseldorf. Great to hear the <laughs> story. Um, Frank, uh, sort of continuing on that Delta tip, brands have had kind of started doing all of these, you know, back to normal campaigns, hadn't they? But I guess they're having to have a little bit of a rethink now in, in light of that. Yeah, I think some of them have the danger of coming across as a bit uh, tone deaf because some of them are very aggressive and urging consumers, you know, to get back to normal and follow their dreams and all of those great things. But, you know, with the Delta variant out there and, and becoming the dominant strain in the U.S. and it's a, a more aggressive strain, um, it, it a lot of people think it's a bit too early or maybe they should just put these on pause for a little while. And and I can see the logic there because you see a lot of other companies having to make tough decisions about whether or not they're going to require employees to be vaccinated as they come back to the office and whether that applies to corporate employees versus the rest of their workforce uh, and whether customers should wear masks in stores. So you, you still have companies making a lot of very difficult decisions about the pandemic and what they're going to require both from customers uh, and their own workforce. So, I mean, it's a reminder we're still very much uh, in the thick of this. Um, There's still a lot of danger out there. And, um, yeah, companies need to take this sort of thing seriously. They do. Didn't seem to worry anyone in Lollapalooza in Chicago last week. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was wild. I have to tell you, I I I forgot that the and this is a blessing of sorts, but I I forgot that the band Limp Bizkit had even existed. And then I saw them (laughs) pop up on my social media feed and I was just I was bewildered for a while. I didn't know they were still around. That's they evidently are. So, yeah. Stephanie, is there this tension in Germany between people getting vaccinated and and those who aren't, or is it uh, most people getting vaccinated? No, you know, it's interesting being outside of the U.S. and watching it from the outside in. Um, I personally, I I don't believe we've had that here in Germany. Uh, The thing is, the EU had gotten off to quite a slow start from a vaccination perspective. It was, I don't think they had enough vaccines. They didn't secure enough. And the 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 rollout um, wasn't as um, robust as let's say Israel, uh, UK or the US. So it took some time, and I think there was some a little bit of tension around that. But people really followed the rules, and I think you know if you look at the numbers now, we're Germany. I, I, I don't want to be quoted on the, on the podcast. I'm pretty sure that Germany had had caught up in terms of the number of vaccinations, and I think people want to get on with their lives. Um, you know, there's a very good system here in Germany of when they hit a certain level of um, cases, we have different levels of um, restrictions and people just, you know, people follow it. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. Without engaging in national stereotypes, you do expect the Germans to be well organized for sure. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Frank, an interesting story this week. Uh, Edelman has acquired a consultancy called Basilina in uh I think I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but no doubt you'll correct me. But uh, based in DC, and it's part of a rollout of a new sort of set of services, isn't it? I think it's a really fascinating acquisition um, because uh, we talked to the CEO of Edelman, Richard Edelman, about this this week, and, and he is really positioning this as a boutique firm. Now, I, I don't know that anybody would really associate the words boutique and Edelman you know, together because you think of it being the biggest firm in the world, but he's going for more of a, a small and tailored fit for, uh, for this group. So 
It's a really interesting firm. Vaselina is um, Deborah Lair is their founder and CEO. Uh, if you look at her resume, it's a real like who is who, where's where list of of uh, DC insider positions, think tanks. Um, it worked in you know uh, worked in White House administrations. Just just a, a very impressive uh, very impressive resume. But this group is going to be separate from the general Edelman firm and operate as sort of a, a spinoff, providing tailored solutions to governments, NGOs, uh, and companies that are facing all kinds of difficult decisions. So uh, in terms of who are the competitors, the competitive set to this, uh, Richard Edelman largely sees the APCOs, the McLarty's, uh, Albright Stonebridge's uh, of the world as more of the competitive set to this group and less the more general PR firm. So that's, that I think is an interesting insight into, into where this shop is going to be going. I'm sure he would, uh, uh, we would include Powell Tate, Weber Shandwick's public affairs shop as well in that. Yeah, he, I think so. He probably didn't fancy giving them a name check, but uh, what was interesting about it was that he talked about their public affairs practice, which is being folded into uh, Edelman Global Advisory, which this uh, acquisition will uh, will come under, it only had thirty million dollars in revenue. Um, so that you would have expected Edelman, as like you said, the biggest firm in the world, nine hundred million dollar company, to have a much bigger you know uh, revenue stream in in public affairs, which is no doubt why he's beefing it up. Yeah, I agree, and he does make the point in the interview that it's important uh, to sort of. Uh, forgetting the analogy he used, but sort of shore up both sides of the tent, right? And so they're, they're, they obviously make a big deal out of their creative hires uh, and their uh, creative and marketing focus. But, you know, it, it's important to shore up the corporate and public affairs um, side of it as well. And I, I, I was also surprised. I thought it would be more than $30 million. So what you're saying is right. Yeah, it's, um, it makes sense that he's shoring this up too. Yeah. And it, it won't include their public sector work. That will remain under Edelman. And uh, they just hired a guy called Tony Silver from Ogilvy as public sector GM and uh, who will be based in Edelman, D.C. Stephanie, um, what's your agency strategy in terms of partners that you use at Trivago and, and how do you deploy them? Sure. So we, we have an agency in, um, in the U.S., in New York, Peppercom, um, that we use for, um, uh, you know, U.S. work. And then... Um, a, a agency flagship that's now uh, Unity changed the branding of it in the UK, um, and then I had handled Germany. Um, and recently, we I started using. Um, we have an agency that we use more for policy type of stuff, um, happening Schuchner. Um, but I I tend to actually lean on them now more for German since my, my German is not so good. Uh, but yeah, um, the way we've sort of structured it in um, in uh, Trivago is we really focus on our, our top five key markets um, where we have a proactive strategy around that. And then the other markets I, you know, handle on, on a at need basis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, staying on the agency tip, Frank Martin Sorrell, former CEO of uh, WPP has rebranded his uh, S4 capital holding company. Tell us all about it. Yeah. It's not a wild, crazy rebranding. It is just taking the two firms, Mighty Hive and Media, Media, Monks 
Yeah, I almost called it media hunks, which would be a totally different topic. But <laughs> I'm sure Simone would be happy with that. <laughs> I'd be interested. <laughs> Rebranded as I guess you would pronounce it media dot monks, or it's media monks with a period in the middle. Um, this is a play of bringing the firms together in one network uh, and being able to offer clients a more integrated service. Um, and it's interesting, we, we've seen similar attempts at this, you know, the power of one concept over a publicist group, um, and IPG has done some similar things. Um, as for a bit of a smaller shop, and that may actually give them an advantage in trying to execute this. So uh, interested to see how it works out for sure. Yeah, I mean, you might have thought that S4 Capital was a very slightly sterile sort of name, you know, yeah. but, and you remember that WPP actually stood for wire and plastic products, didn't it? So it was a, right. just an off-the-shelf uh, name. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Interesting that he's got media in the name of his holding company as well, you know, that he's kept that. So uh, gives you, a, I mean, they're very much a digital firm, aren't they? And um, and growing quite fast. I think he said he's looking at becoming a million, a billion-dollar holding company fairly quickly so that's uh, that's right quick progress and yes and he said about the ad market that he described himself as a raging bull if you like oh, about the okay. about the ad market so uh, there you go um i'll have to go and re-watch that robert de niro film um uh, having you just reminded me of that um the andrew cuomo affair well affair is probably the wrong way to uh, describe it but uh, obviously he there's been an investigation which has found that he did sexually harass uh women um and it's being handled in a very very strange way from a messaging point of view you'd think someone would 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 resign after that but uh, he's not going to both sounds of it. no and i i think we're we're in a bit of a different era where the traditional sense of when a politician gets caught doing something and and they're shamed and then they automatically resign i mean i i think those days are largely gone and now if you're talking about a governor, I think it's more about do you have the votes to impeach this person, which I think is, is being sorted out right now. And this is going – and if Cuomo does try to hang on as long as he can, this can be a months-long process because the – I was reading about the impeachment process in the state of New York, and it looks like something that if he tries to hang well, you on – You do fun, isn't it, Frank, in your spare time? <laughs> it's it's so much fun, yeah. So, but it, it would go into it looks like October and November at this point. So, I think if anybody's looking for a very quick resolution, even after you know the head of his own party, the president called for him to resign yesterday, you're probably not going to get a quick resolution to this unless they can go to him and say, "Look, we've counted the votes and we have the votes to impeach you, and it's over." And he still might try to hang on until the end. So uh, we'll see what happens. So I think a lot of people, though, were, were buzzing and, and not in a good way yesterday about the 14-minute pre-recorded video that he did um, in, in which he it is, it is just extremely unusual in a lot of ways, not the least of which because it had various pictures of him affectionately touching other men, other women. His mom, you know, the whole like hands on face thing uh, and sort of just saying this is how he makes people feel comfortable. And it just I, it was just really wildly tone deaf and, and I think bizarre and it just really struck a lot of the wrong chords. And I, it's also the first time I think you can you can ever remember a politician or or, or any kind of public official or, or you know, bold face name addressing 
using the name of somebody who has accused him of sexual harassment, you know, by name in responding to it, which I think just it just rubs people so the wrong way. And it just it, it obviously did not help him because the president called for him to resign like two hours later. Yeah, it just felt like he needed some uh, crisis comms advice, didn't it? And uh, to <laughs> handle it in a very yeah. Um, yeah. And he's leaning on his Italian roots, isn't he, to sort of justify this. Stephanie, I don't, you know, I don't know, you probably don't want to get into the the details of this, but is that, do you see cultural differences in the way, you know, you live in Germany, the, the Cuomo talks about his Italian roots, Brit, the Brits, you know, a firm handshake or whatever. And America, do you, have you seen different cultural values in business in, in, you know, working in Germany compared to the U S uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you, you see, um, the underlying culturalness of each person and how they react to situations and how they speak and their mannerisms, et cetera. I don't, I don't know. I've ever seen a German politician <laughs> do something similar to what Como did, but, uh, it doesn't sound like the German voice. I don't think it would be. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, I didn't watch all of it, but I was, um, kind of questioning if it was an actual real video that I was watching. But there, there is... There's the old, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and there is so much. I And I think that for anybody in the media business, but also, but also on the PR side of the fence, there is a lot of interesting reading in the report that Attorney General James put out. Um, because there is a lot here about how Cuomo's team and how his top advisor leak things about accusers to the press and how, how they use their relationships with reporters and the back and forth that they had with reporters. And it's, it's really a, in a lot of ways, not in a good way, but it's a real behind the curtains look uh, at how a situation like that plays out in terms of that relationship. Yeah, and brings up ethical issues on both sides and um, sort of also tells you about how politics is a pretty dirty business, isn't it? So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see how that one plays out for sure. Um, let's catch up on the Olympics, Frank. I know you're a massive fan. Um, I was excited to see a 12-year-old Japanese young uh, woman win a, a gold medal uh, last night and uh, a British 13-year-old got the bronze, which made me feel incredibly old. But uh, I guess the Simone Biles storyline is the one that really – is top of the agenda again. It is. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it, and she won bronze. She, and which is a bit of a, you don't see a comeback story within the same Olympics often. And I, I think that was, was good to see for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people were rooting for her. Um, just knowing the amount of pressure she was under, um, Sydney McLaughlin, the sprinter from New Jersey, very exciting hurdles race yesterday. I, I am having, I am also having some trouble in figuring out what's live and what's yes, not because yeah. they are, they're meshed together so closely that I, I'm having a real hard time <laughs> flipping back and forth between the channels. But I saw that live, uh, on Tuesday night and that was really exciting in which two American sprinters actually surpassed the previous world record uh for i think it was the 200 meter hurdles and it was 200 200 meter hurdles was it the 400 yeah Yeah. and the day before the guys had uh but the top two guys had uh broken the world record as well so they're talking about it's obviously a fast track but uh it was unprecedented you know it was like a a bit of a lifetime moment stephanie what's uh catching the attention in germany from from the olympics uh point of view (sighs) 
I have to be honest with you. I don't. I don't. I, I don't know who watched it. Here. <laughs> I haven't. I. I, I have. Um, I've turned it on. I have to say this. That for me, the Simone Biles. I. I'm so such a fan of hers, and I. I think sometimes we forget that our athletes or these people that we put on pedestals are actually human, and yeah. it must have been for her, even in the um, the French Open with. Um, Naomi, like here, it must have, yeah, it must have been um, to to have the courage to to come out and and say I can't do this for my mental health. But then, what I thought was just awful is the backlash, some of the backlash that these two received, and it's just you have to remember that they are human and they have a job and a, a, and they're you know they're good at a sport, but they're also you know they have to take care of themselves and they're not here just to entertain us. I totally and, agree. Uh, I'm so proud of her. Yeah. yeah, they're human and they're doing uh, activities that are life-threatening if something goes wrong, you know. So the days when they would throw a young kid back onto the gymnastic floor with a broken foot, which used to happen, and we've seen those images, thankfully, are long gone. So I totally agree. And she did a great interview with Mike Tirico on NBC mm-hmm. talking about that after her bronze and talking about the support she'd had from Naomi Osaka, Michael Phelps, and, and thousands of other people, but also talking about how she felt women athletes got treated differently to male athletes in terms of the pressures put on them and how she was, you know, the the pressure of dealing with being the face of the games, the global face of the games was also an additional thing, which, which, you know, uh, every NBC, every, you know, every program led with her and you you go to an ad break and there are three ads with her. But uh, so she spoke very well about it. And um, I was so glad that she did get back to competing in, uh, uh, at least in one exercise and she got a medal. And so I think she was mm-hmm. very, proud, very proud of that. And so, she, so she should be. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was good to see, but I'm, I love the Olympics and I, you know, it's a few days left and, uh, I think the Japanese nation has done a brilliant job actually putting them on in really, really difficult circumstances. And, uh, it's been, there's been some iconic moments as there always, as there always are. So, Good for them. Um, and finally, Frank, we've got uh, our call for best places to work submissions going out um, for after an unprecedented year in the industry. That's right. And it is out. It's open. If you are interested in entering your organization, uh, there's a short questionnaire you have to do first. And all the info is on our website. And you can see it in the breakfast briefing five days a week. Great stuff. Stephanie, it's been brilliant to chat to you and get the perspective uh, from uh, Europe and from Germany. And we wish you good luck. And we, you know, we hope that we hope the new normal comes around quicker rather than sooner rather than later. But uh, yeah, great to have you on the show. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. Nice to chat. All right. So, uh, yeah, look out for Best Places to Work. And we have our PR Decoded conference, which will be a virtual conference. That's from the 12th to the 14th of October. And we'll have the Purpose Awards in the middle of that on the 13th. Still TBD on whether that's going to be in-person or or virtual. More to come on that. And our 40 Under 40 celebration, that group was announced last week. That will be on the 28th of October. But uh, that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.